Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be discussing the book titled African Interventions, State Militaries, Foreign Powers and Rebel Forces, out from Cambridge University Press in 2021. This book is written by two authors, Dr. Emizit Kisangani and Dr. Jeffrey Pickering. Um, And in the book, they talk about foreign military interventions um, in Africa and how we can combine a lot of different ways of thinking to understand what has actually been happening um, around foreign military intervention in Africa in the post-colonial period. Um, I'm very lucky today to be joined by Jeff Prickering to talk about um, this book that he has co-authored and to hear more about the arguments in it, the process of creating the book. Um, So thank you very much, Jeff, for joining us. Thank you for uh, having me here to talk about the book, Miranda. I'm I'm thrilled. Wonderful. Um, could you please start off, please, by introducing yourself and your background, um, as well as briefly your co-authors, um, and explain how you two came together to write the book? Sure. Um, so I received my PhD in political science about a quarter of a century ago uh, from Indiana University. And... My first tenure-track job was at Kansas State University. When I arrived, Emizek Kisangani was here. He was already on staff um, through uh, being near each other in a corner of a, of a hall in, in, at the university. Discussions began and eventually collaboration, and we've been publishing together on various topics, military intervention, state building, for over 20 years now. Um, we, all, we updated a military intervention data set that I initially worked on that was initiated by scholars at my undergraduate institution, Fred Pearson and, and Robert Bauman. Um, and so this book, that, well, and Kisangani, he's originally from Congo, um, has some very interesting experiences in uh, the previous government of Congo under Mobutu. Um, came to the U.S., eventually earned a Ph.D., and and K-State was his first tenure-track job. So we felt that this book was just a somewhat of a natural extension of our work up to this point, and and it brought together specialized knowledge that we both had. Um, Military intervention, which I've been working on for, again, 25 years, um, a lot of quantitative work on that. Emizet joined me on some of that. And Emizet's a scholar of African politics. He's published a lot on his native Congo. Um, so we felt this was just a culmination of our, our skill sets. And we felt we could offer something new because a lot of the work on intervention in Africa, it, it, it's historical, which is phenomenal, but that means it focuses on a handful of cases or a handful of countries 
Or if you look at, at the tradition we work in frequently, quantitative literature, it tends to look for universal uh, patterns and universal explanations. And it doesn't look at the uniqueness of a continent like Africa, which is incredibly unique. It doesn't take that uniqueness into account. So we wanted to bridge the gap between these two literatures, kind of the the historical, the case study, the in-depth literature that doesn't really provide broad explanations of intervention across the continent, and and this broader literature, this quantitative literature that doesn't take into account the context, which is so, so important. Um, So we thought we had something you need to contribute. And we also thought this is... This is, this is important for the real world. It has substantive real world importance because military interventions, and we don't really talk about the consequences in our book of interventions. We're talking about what causes them, but they have such an impact in stability, interventions, um, rebels moving across border have had such an impact on lives across the continent that for us, it was just an imperative to try to get a better understanding of this. This has such importance. We need to use whatever tools we can and use our past experiences to try to develop some more thorough, exhaustive understanding of military intervention patterns on the continent of Africa. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it very clearly demonstrates um, the gap you're trying to fill and its importance of it. And so I'd love to kind of continue with that and ask about the methods that um, are in this book, because you've clearly illustrated kind of the different things that exist and their strengths and weaknesses. So can you tell us a bit about the methodologies you use to fill this gap in the book, how you chose them specifically and kind of how you combined them? Sure. So I know methods can not always be the most exciting conversation, but for me, and and I'm pretty confident for Imazet as well, the methods in this book were really exciting for us Um, because, well, we used a method we hadn't used before, and we were bringing them together in a way that we hadn't before, and we thought it was really valuable. So there are three methods we use. We use quantitative large-end methods, which are common in international relations, political science, the quantitative traditions in in those fields, and which we're very familiar with. We use historical narrative, and we use a relatively new, or it's becoming much more common, qualitative method called qualitative comparative analysis. And each of these methods has strengths and weaknesses, limitations, Um, advantages. And we thought by triangulating them, using them together, we could fill some of the the gaps among them to get a better explanation. So for example, the quantitative uh, estimates we have in the book. People know quantitative scholars, quantitative research tends to be prized or valued because it has generalizable results. It can be more rigorous in some ways than other research, Um, but it has limitations as well. The data are ultimately proxies and they can be really rough proxies. 
especially on a continent like Africa. So our time period is from 1960 to 2015. And in older decades or earlier decades, or even till today, some of the data from Africa, which depends on government reporting, can be really noisy, unreliable, um, or just not there, missing. So quantitative gives us kind of a first look. Our second approach is the historical narrative to kind of to put some flesh around these different incidents of military intervention. And this is a place, Miranda, where I think I think we really made a a neat contribution and, and for me a fun contribution. So we go in and we try to piece together craft narratives for 450 military interventions over this time period by different actors. Some of these cases are going to be found in secondary histories, are going to be found in histories of French military activity on the continent or large scale events, wars or something like that. But a lot of them, for our measure of military intervention, it is any time national troops cross a border into another state, presumably on purpose, not just an accident, not on a training mission or not some kind of accidental border crossing or something that wasn't initiated by the government. So our data set includes a lot of of small events, Um, a lot of events like chasing rebels across borders or attacking rebel outposts across borders, which are one-off quick hits that aren't going to be found in secondary histories. Um, there's even there's even a, a, a interaction of chasing cattle rustlers between Uganda and Kenya, which it depends on. Apparently, some of these were purposeful, and they did lead to casualties. I actually had a nice conversation with the Ugandan military attaché earlier this spring about this series of episodes. Um, but you're not going to find a lot in history, secondary history work on historical work on cross-border raids to, to target specific cross-border raids to target cattle rustlers or rebel outposts. So what we had to rely on is, is news sources, mainly contemporaneous sources from the time of these individual events and try to piece them together to build a narrative of what occurred. And I think this is, um, <laughs> it's very unique for our research history, the type of research we've done in the past, but I think it's pretty valuable because it's, it's creating a lasting record of these events. The third method is, is qualitative comparative analysis, QCA. And again, this is becoming more common. It's a qualitative method that uses Bayesian logic to produce combinations of variables that need to be present or absent in specific cases of military intervention or specific categories of military intervention. And we'd never used this method before. We learned it for this book. We find it incredibly valuable. It produces these, what they call recipes of different variables, which they call conditions in QCA. That's the QCA terminology for each specific intervention, um, although we had we had to do it 
in a more broad way, but I won't get into that. But that helps us to understand in a way that quantitative work doesn't, the fact that there are different pathways that can lead to this outcome of military intervention. And different interventions by different countries at different and different periods, there are different causal chains. And social scientists call this equifinality, that there are these different paths to get to that outcome. QCA helps to capture that. QCA is witnesses as well. It abstracts in a way, not as much as quantitative work, but it's still abstracting from reality. Um, can't handle a whole bunch of variables, a whole bunch of conditions. So you have to have some kind of some strong theoretical priors or some strong evidence of what you think is going to be important in these different cases. But when you combine QCA with these narratives that we help to develop with quantitative work, we think that helps to produce a pretty compelling, pretty compelling argument about who intervenes, why, uh, what type of interventions tend to take place. So again, methods aren't the most exciting for some people, but for us, those methods were really exciting in this book. Well, thank you for explaining that, because I think for a lot of us, methods um, can be quite exciting when they let us do things that we've not been able to before, or look at things in different ways. And I personally find that combined methods can be often the most exciting because um, you can kind of overlap things, almost like creating a kaleidoscope or creating a Venn diagram. Um, there's a lot of possibility there. So um, I'm glad that you highlighted the methods in your introduction um, and have described them in the books. I think it's a really key part of what makes the book interesting, um, even for people who maybe don't care about what you've used it for. If you may, might not be interested in African interventions, though, you, you really should be. Um, but if you're not, it, there's still a ton to learn about, wait, how do we use different methods to answer different kinds of questions? Um, but I do want to stick with, obviously, the argument of the book um, and the content that I found quite interesting um, and ask you a bit about some of the kind of pieces that come up in the book um, through the use of these methods. And so the first thing I want to ask about is um, pulling a little bit on something you've already mentioned around borders um, and how borders are so important for understanding foreign military interventions. So I'm wondering if you can explain for us a little bit about the significance of the concept of border fixity, borders not moving, in understanding African interventions. Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, and I'm happy to hear that you're excited about methods. Um, I, I, I think methodological pluralism is so important, and, and I and so many others get frustrated with, with uh, methodological purity of different camps of scholars. Uh, we really need that kaleidoscope that you talked about. It's vital. We're looking at, we're looking at complex events here, and it takes different tools and the combination of different tools to try to bring some level of understanding to them. So border fixity. So this is a concept that's underlying the entire book, helps us to highlight what we want to focus on in terms of explanation, because we think this is a foundation of understanding for intervention throughout the continent. Border fixity is the deep set norm that borders are immutable, they're sacrosanct. Um, and, and there are historical reasons for this and it's evolved over time and the norms become more ingrained. Um, and, and there are exceptions. Eritrea has been a 
emerged, South Sudan's emerged, but it's been a powerful norm in Africa for nearly all post-independent states. When combined with weak states, it has led people like Jackson and Roseburg to claim that most African governments have only juridical sovereignty, meaning they have legal authority over the countries they rule, but they don't have real authority in the countryside or in many parts of the territory that they theoretically control. Um, and for some countries, I mean, their, their, their reach doesn't really get far beyond the capital city. This notion, this notion of border fixity and the weakness of states, many African states, is really important in terms of how you think about what causes military interventions on the continent, between African states especially. If countries don't conquer other countries, if they don't take and acquire territory from their neighbors, that has pretty important implications for the use of military force across borders, military intervention. It means that national militaries in many of these countries, historically, are as much or more for domestic security than they are for defending territories and borders. And it also means that the primary interstate, state-to-state threat many of these governments face isn't foreign armies. Foreign armies aren't going to take their land. Foreign armies aren't going to depose them, or rarely. Their primary threat are native indigenous rebels, outgroups that aren't in power at the time, who move across borders, who build sanctuaries, who take refuge in neighboring countries and then attack and represent a threat from across the border. If your primary threat are indigenous rebels, transnational rebels, that changes the calculation of military intervention substantially on who you're intervening against, what type of intervention you launch. And again, from the tradition we're working from, the traditional quantitative literature on military force, it often looks at state-to-state variables or interactions, what, what what's called dyadic interactions, to try to explain patterns of military force or military intervention. And in a continent like Africa with border fixity, it's kind of missing the boat because the threat isn't coming from a rival state. It does. There are rivals in Africa, and our book goes through some of these cases and some of the interactions. But many of the threats aren't from state actors. So that changes the context and the explanation of military intervention pretty dramatically. And we give an example, I think a really good example of the continuing power of border fixity. And that's Rwanda in the the second Congo war, what was called Africa's first world war. Of course, Rwanda, clearly the most powerful military in Congo's east, they, they fought a pitch battle in Kisangani um, with Uganda and emerged victorious. 
there was no time during the war, after the war, that the Congolese had anything resembling a national military that could have ousted Kigali's army. No time. And Kigali was profiting off um, the war. The UN has, has documented the amount of diamonds um, Rwanda sold and the wealth generated. And, and Rwandan President Kagame publicly said, this war is self-financing. And how is it self-financing? Natural resources that were being exploited, extracted from Congo's east. Even with all that, the fact that the Congolese military really couldn't defend its borders. Rwanda's profiting. Um, Rwanda has security interests because of Hutu rebels who have, to this day, potentially are a threat to the regime. Um, despite all that, and despite the claim, despite when the war, uh, when uh, Rwanda initially sent troops in, they claimed there needed to be some reconsideration of territorial boundaries based on historical um, reasoning. The borders went back to their pre-war um, formation as soon as the war ended. So that's an example of border fixity and, and the fact that it doesn't really reflect some of the realities on the ground. Now, this goes beyond our book. We ended in 2015 just because uh, we had data only that went to 2015. Um, we we're building off this this data set, and, and to be reliable and be consistent, we didn't want to go further at this time. But of course, Rwanda is now accused of being active, along with the M23 rebels within the east, because of those same security reasons. But the borders remain in the same situation they were in the past. Mm. Very interesting. Thank you for explaining that um, sort of in theory and in practice, as it were. Um, I think that is a very powerful example to illustrate um, the concept and kind of why it's had how it's had so much staying power. Um, and I want to sort of stay on this idea of the biggest threats not being other state actors, um, because one of the other things that you look at in the book in terms of um, why are there foreign military interventions is the idea of mass unrest or economic pressures like inflation, um, both of which are relatively common, um, not just in Africa, and particularly mass unrest around things like inflation, food price rises, etc. Um, how, in through your analysis, how much are those kinds of reasons, again, not the traditional threat of another state, how much are those kinds of reasons helping explain why, for example, non-colonial, non-African states might intervene in Africa? Excellent, excellent question. So I'll start with a couple uh, qualifiers or, or some ground works. Um, start by saying Kiss and Guy and I have published a lot on the idea that these type of influences, these domestic influences, um, can lead states and leaders to dispatch their forces into other countries. In the international relations literature, this is called diversionary theory, or the notion that states use force across borders not only because of strategic or national security interests, uh, but also they may use 
military force across borders for domestic purposes to, and the diversionary part comes in, to divert if the economy is bad, if there's there's public protests, if the government is being challenged domestically, and perhaps its rules seem shaky or there's some concern about the longevity of the government because of this these domestic problems, they may use military force to divert popular public attention away from the domestic problems that are currently plaguing the country and to rally the population around the leadership. So that's one uh, qualifier. The second is that you focused on non-colonial um, states, and, and we divided up our analysis throughout the book on different groups of states with the assumption that colonial states with deep historical ties like France that intervene, their reasons for intervening are probably different than non-colonial external actors. And African states, when they intervene, if they intervene to support a neighbor or a friendly regime, as opposed to attack a, a hostile regime, these are all probably different dynamics. So we categorize the different types of interventions. On non-colonial interveners, we find some of the traditional variables that are highlighted by, say, realist scholars, or in many of the Cold War histories that you're going to read are important for superpower interventions during the Cold War. Things like alliances, military capability advantages. In the foreign policy literature, foreign policy analysis literature and political science, there's this notion that states have foreign policy roles and there are ways to get at these and to operationalize these. And clearly the two superpowers during the Cold War had global roles that helped to influence their actions within throughout the world, but including in Africa. So we find evidence for these traditional kind of security um, interstate variables that help to explain non-colonial interventions. But what might be interesting, and this is building on this past research we've had, is that we also find evidence that there are diversionary pressures behind some of these interventions that some of these interventions took place. Now, there may, have, there may have also been, and oftentimes there were, strategic or security reasons for the interventions to take place. But at the same time, they occurred during periods of unusual and high levels of mass unrest, popular protests, riots within countries based on the historical data we have, the trends and these type of mass phenomena. So for example, we track only two, or we, we find only two hostile U.S. interventions throughout the entire sample. 1986 bombing of Libya, after the bombing of the discotheque in Berlin, 1998, the Clinton administration, missile attack in Sudan, um, targeting Al-Qaeda, but also some um, Sudanese uh, facilities. These both occurred, again, 
traditional security reasons for doing both these, but they also happen to occur at times of mass protests based on long-term trends that were out of the ordinary. And when you look at QCA, mass protests in the combination, in combination with stable economic growth patterns. QCA would argue those domestic variables help to explain those as events as well. Another one that I find fascinating. So as I'm sure the listeners know, Cuba's involvement in the seventies and Africa was incredibly consequential, incredibly consequential Two massive interventions, which the historical record shows they largely drug the Soviet Union along behind them in Angola and Ethiopia. And this is the value of something like QCA, that these things aren't necessarily brought to the forefront without some of these methodologies to try to get us to look at things in different ways. QCA suggests that those massive interventions were in part caused by discord, some kind of disagreements and unrest based on these measures within Cuba's ruling elite. And interestingly, there's some historical uh, work that supports this, that reinforces this, that finds that there was disagreement about these interventions. Even Castro was reluctant with Ethiopia. He didn't think the new regime was sufficiently um, socialist revolutionary enough. Um, So there was disagreement. There was discord. And some of the actors arguing at the time for intervention were arguing to intervene for domestic reasons, to revitalize the revolutionary uh, zeal of the public in Cuba, that this was necessary to keep the spirit of the revolution going forward. It was a domestic argument in the midst of this discord and, and controversy over launching the interventions. Now, we don't have the full picture. Some scholars have gone and have had access to Cuban archives, but we don't have the full picture until the archives are fully accessible. But this points again to not the traditional kind of security, strategic interest, state on state concerns, but domestic pressures leading to these type of interventions. Mm -hmm. Thank you for explaining that, because I think it is really quite interesting and it does show the possibilities of combining the methodologies as we already started um, at the beginning of the interview to talk about. Um, And I'd love to, as you said, talk about you had the countries categorized in different ways. Um, And so I do, of course, want to ask about um, the colonial category. And particularly, maybe it's just me that finds French post-colonial interventions in Africa particularly interesting. Um, But I do get to pick the questions. So can you tell us about from this sort of category how French interventions in this period in Africa are, to what extent are French interventions unique, even compared to other colonial interventions? Um, Yeah, what's happening with the French interventions, I suppose, is the question. That's a great question. I'm glad you're interested and find it exciting or uh, something interesting to look at. It's important because France by far is the most frequent intervener in sub-Saharan Africa or throughout the continent. 
in our time period, France launched almost 90, 89 interventions they launched, which is more than twice, two times more than the next most common state that intervened, which was the U.S. with 39 interventions. And trying to get at and understand French interventionary activity within the continent really highlights the utility of, of these different approaches that we're using. And, and again, shines a spotlight on QCA, which, which helps to highlight some variables that might be overlooked if we weren't combining these different methodologies. So going back to the foreign policy literature on foreign policy roles, we find and we operationalize foreign policy roles and they're, they're placed within the QCA. Um, and we build on the historical work, which is emphasize France's historical ties with the continent. We find that this French foreign policy role in Africa, this longstanding idea that Francophone Africa helped to buttress and was vital for France's status in the world as a, some kind of global power, especially at a time, you know, after the Second World War, the superpowers have emerged. France, European powers are receding in terms of global influence. Colonialism has wound down. Um, successive French governments viewed France's role in Africa as a way to bolster their influence as vital to the French foreign policy um, apparatus. Uh, and there's and this is there are complex histories here. Our methodologies don't really get into. We describe the history, we describe the secondary work, don't really get into the details of the creation of these roles. We just try to determine if these roles have an impact on the interventionary activity. So there's a lot of background that, I mean, some writers claim that France's attempt to have continuous influence on Francophone Africa stems from, they call it a Fashoda syndrome, the, the, the infamous 1898 event where French colonial forces backed down uh, in a confrontation in Sudan with uh, British colonial forces, whatever, whatever the cost, France has had this historic role and successive administrations have seen that have taken this role as being important. Even presidents who've come to power claiming they were going to initiate a dramatic change in the French role in Africa, like Mitterrand, the first socialist president in the Fifth Republic, it's going to cut back the French military role. It's going to be a dramatic new relationship. What happened? It persevered. And two years later, a year later, he's, he's defending the French military role on the continent. So given all this, given this, this foreign policy role and, and this, his, these historic ties France has had, what we find, not surprisingly, is that most French interventions on the continent are designed to shore up friends of France, leaders and regimes that have 
friendly ties, close ties with Paris, who Paris views as in their national interest to maintain these people in power. Um, so most French interventions, 80%, are supportive of allied or aligned regimes within on the continent. Now, some of these, and again, we're talking about what causes the interventions we don't delve into. We'd love to. There are so many interesting topics to delve into. We don't delve into the consequences necessarily, although we do in different interweaving different patterns of intervention. Um, some of these folks were pretty despotic, brutal rulers. I mean, uh, brutal dictators. Um, and, and some of these French operations were very controversial. Operation Turquoise after um, the Rwandan genocide. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear that the French military helped to um, protect and to and helped perpetrators of the genocide to escape, including some of the leadership. So many of these were controversial. Many supported distasteful regimes. On the, on the other hand, France also limited human rights abuses in some countries, and and, and uh, eventually they moved against, for example, Bokassa and the Central African Republic, a horribly brutal leader. They intervened repeatedly in Chad, but one of the interventions was in support of the new Debye regime, regime and which signaled to rebels supporting the, the previously ousted Habre that who was a brutal dictator that he would not be coming back into power. So sometimes the outcomes weren't so bad in terms of human rights situ- situation on the continent. But anyway, most of the interventions, our QCA, our, our historical analysis emphasized these foreign policy roles. QCA also illustrates, interestingly, again, mass protests. If you go through and you look at the timing of some of these interventions, supporting Friends of France, some of them occurred during periods of unusually high levels of riots, public protests, etc. So again, there are probably security. We delve into the details of the different interventions. There are often security reasons that these interventions were initiated, but there may have been diversionary domestic pressures at play as well. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that, um, because I think even without doing massive quantitative analysis the way that um, you have France, the number of interventions alone um, really kind of catches notice, um, if only in one sense, because it keeps happening even now. So it shows up in the news more often than others do. Um, And so it's really interesting to kind of delve into that and go, okay, hang on, what's happening here? So thank you for explaining that. and continue with the trend of explaining what's happening here. You mentioned um, earlier that QCA uh, creates these sort of recipes, that's their terminology, um, to explain pathways or explain instances of hostile military intervention um, and kind of how that happens. So you've already given us a whole bunch of examples, which is brilliant, but I'm wondering if you can maybe use one example to illustrate one of the recipes you have, um, or obviously you have more than one in the book, Um, But in the interest of time, if you could introduce us maybe to one of them. Sure. Um, So in terms of hostile interventions by African states on the African continent. Sure. um, 
One thing we find is that, and again, this is something that I don't think you would find in traditional approaches to these subjects, is that really bad economic situations in African countries seem to coincide with military interventions. For example, um, Angola. Angola, the Angolan economy was in free fall or was suffering in the 90s. It had contracted, had negative economic growth throughout most years in the 90s. In 1993, it contracted 25%. Inflation was just runaway. It had runaway inflation. Inflation averaged over 2,000% between 1993 and 1996. It reached a high of over 4,000% in 1996. So these types of economic hardships create, um, obviously, pressures on governments um, because there's public dissatisfaction. Our QCA results show that Angola and a number of other African countries, when there's no public protest, but there's this economic, bad economic news, the economy is struggling, these countries tend to use force in hostile ways into other countries. And the assumption is, well, we think that if there was repression, if there was public protest as well, there might be repression instead of external military intervention. But getting back to Angola, so Angola economy suffering in the 90s, 4,000%, over 4,000% inflation in 1996. Angola intervenes in the first Congo War in 97 and in the second Congo War in 98. Now there are security reasons to do this. They want regimes in Kinshasa that oppose the United Rebels, that oppose their their native indigenous rebels, that don't allow them to use Congolese territories, territory for bases, etc. And they also gained access to oil rights after the Second Congo War, when they intervened in the Second Congo War. But at the same time, when your economy is collapsing, it seems likely that that also played some role in, deci- in the decision to start a foreign adventure, a foreign military intervention, a venture. So that's one example of a no public protest, significant levels of public protest, and a disastrous economy has led in many African cases to hostile interventions into neighboring states. Mm. That's a good example as well to illustrate that pathway, um, because at first glance, it does look kind of odd. Um, so thank you for illustrating that for us and also sort of demonstrating kind of the usefulness of having recipes and pathways to not to assume that everything works the same way, but to help us see connections where we might otherwise not be able to. Um, I wanted to ask about another kind of intervention that you've already mentioned, right? Obviously, that answer was about hostile military intervention. But you've also mentioned um, that this data set includes supportive military interventions and that France was quite often doing that kind of intervention. Um, But I'm wondering if you can explain kind of what the dynamics are and what that looks like when it's African countries launching supportive military interventions for other African countries. Sure, sure. And that occurs more than one might think. Um, One great... Well, a consistent theme for these supportive interventions is the presence of ethnic kin in whatever country 
the troops are being sent into. Um, really good example are the um, Mano River states in West Africa. So Guinea, uh, Sierra Leone, Liberia. Guinea, uh, Guinea's in the news now, and Guinea, well, we won't go there. But historically, Guinea was relatively capable, had a relatively powerful military by regional standards, and Guinea was a frequent intervener in neighboring states, especially under their first leader, Toure, um, largely because they had this capability and there were ethnic ties across these Mano River states. So Guinea's strength is kind of unique. It's interesting. And this is where the historical narrative comes into it as well. Um, I mean, Guinea was the only state to vote for full independence from France um, that led to harsh backlash uh, from the de Gaulle regime. And and later, they, they also were had regional threats from um, Portuguese Guinea. Um, Without French support, they were really put in a position of having to develop a relatively capable government apparatus. And their repeated interventions helped to sharpen the skill of their national army, which again, Unlike so many others, their national army was populated by and led by veterans of French colonial wars, but Ghanaian veterans, not colonial officers. So they had this, in the context of the region, a capable military, and and they repeatedly intervened. Um, Of course, not all the outcomes were wonderful. Sierra Leone and Liberia have tragic, more recent histories, but in the 60s, 70s, Guinea was a common intervener to try to stabilize regimes. Um, Another thing, which actually was really kind of shocking to us, so we have this notion of foreign policy roles. We follow a standard procedure to to try to look at them and test them and put them in the QCA models. And, And we test them across all our different types of states and interveners. And we find that these foreign policy roles impacted African interventions as well. So Guinea's, and and then we go back and look, and it fits the historical record. So QCA is telling us that role theory, that countries that have a larger foreign policy role in general are more likely to intervene, that role theory helps to explain Guinea's many supportive interventions. And that fits because Guinea was relatively stable at the time. Toure was in power for a very long time. He felt he was a vanguard man on the African scene, that he was one of the leaders of the African socialist movement. So it makes sense that he would send troops to stabilize friendly uh, socialist leaders in neighboring countries. Now, again, so, and Miranda, when, whenever I talk or we talk about these different leaders and uh, capable military, and they do intervene in supportive ways a lot, it, you have to step back. I mean, the Touré regime was brutal. Uh, there were notorious labor camps. Many people killed. Um, 
but we don't study again we are we are understand we know that the this is the facts but that's not what we're studying we're just looking at the fact that they have this military that's viable by regional means and they do dispatch it in supportive ways Got it. Well, thank you for explaining. I think put in that kind of context, it does make sense. And it's very satisfying that, you know, all the methods kind of individually come to that conclusion and line up. Um, That makes, you know, you can see it then from a lot of different lenses, which is really interesting. Um, I don't know if necessarily we would immediately think of Guinea as being kind of the supportive military intervener um, at first glance. Um, so I want to move to another type of intervention because we're kind of doing a bit of a tour of them, I suppose. Um, and this is, so we've done hostile, we've done supportive, we've looked at colonial, we've looked at African. Um, but there's also the intervention in, perhaps this is my bias term, but the more anarchic areas or the areas that the countries that you talked about um, at the beginning of having maybe uh, legal jurisdiction over the territory, but perhaps not necessarily on the ground. Um, and the argument in the book is that countries might intervene in these areas. So for example, Somalia being a really um, known one for different reasons than they might intervene in other types of situations. So can you tell us a bit about kind of what drives countries to intervene in these sorts of situations? Sure. I'd be happy to. And by the way, you're a wonderful tour guide as we go on the tour of these various (laughs) types of interventions. (laughs) Um, a deft hand at guiding us through these. This was a tough nut for us to crack. Um, The whole anarchic lands or states or failed states. uh, We find as we look through in kind of an inductive way, we found that obviously their interventions in these states are different. There's a distinct set of challenges and we were trying to get at why. So some states like Somalia, multiple African countries intervened in Somalia, South Sudan, practically no intervention by African states. Um, so, so why, why is there this variance? What causes um, African states to intervene relatively frequently in Ethiopia's case, frequently with, very substantial numbers of troops into Somalia, uh, or infrequently, practically no external involvement. And what we came up with is that there may be something, a thread explaining these phenomena. And that thread is African states don't seem to be intervening into failed neighbors for humanitarian reasons. If you look at governmental pronouncements, everything you can look at, they're intervening in these regions to make sure instability doesn't spill over into their countries or doesn't threaten their regime, doesn't cause issues within their borders. So in Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, Eritrea, They intervened in Somalia to try to change the balance of power within that country in ways that are more favorable for their state and their government, but also to prevent 
ultimately to prevent instability from spilling out. The same reason seems to explain why countries do not intervene in failed states. So, for example, Ethiopia, very substantial interventions into Somalia. Ethiopia did not intervene in South Sudan. Uh, the, the bloodletting, uh, the bloodshed in South Sudan, South Sudan, ethnic bloodshed has largely been between Dinka and Noor. Ethiopia has a sizable Noor population in its Gambela region. Addis Ababa did not intervene in South Sudan precisely because they didn't want instability to seep into that, into their Gambela region. They didn't want intervene, an intervention, intervention to signal or give a green light or to facilitate refugee flows into this region because there's a delicate ethnic balance within this Ethiopian region. So they did not take action for pretty much the same reason they took action in Somalia. They didn't even take action when there was a massacre of Noor at Juba, over 20,000. We don't know the exact numbers in 2013, but Ethiopia didn't intervene even then. They also didn't intervene in South Sudan because they didn't want Eritrea, their rival, to intervene as Eritrea had in Somalia. So I don't know if you noticed this as you read the book. This chapter is a little bit different. This was a, 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 it was a more complex problem than some of the other chapters within the book. But I think we came to a pretty satisfactory explanation of understanding why there's such variation in patterns of intervention by African states within these troubled lands, these anarchic states. Hmm. It is certainly not simple. Um, There's no straightforward answer, but um, I think the book does do a really good job of picking through the pieces and almost kind of picking them up and turning them around and going, okay, hang on, what's happening here? And what happens if we look at it this way? What happens if we look at it this way? How does that um, change and deepen and enhance our understanding? Not about kind of trying to come up with one simple answer, um, but trying to kind of put everything within the conversation or um, kind of put all the pieces on the table, as it were. Um, So in terms of putting all the pieces on the table, as we come to the end of our tour, I suppose, um, obviously very much a highlights tour. I will say to listeners that there's a lot of other examples and detail in the book that we've not been able to um, fully go into. Um, But I would love to end or come towards the end by asking you about the four hypotheses in the book and what you, I mean, obviously in brief, we're not going to be able to go into every detail of it, but what are the four hypotheses and your conclusions about them after looking at all of these different things and through these multiple methods? Yeah, sure. Great. Um, So the four hypotheses, the first one goes back to that diversionary idea, and that is that governments use military intervention basically for domestic reasons or in response to some kind of domestic political or economic difficulties. And we, and again, 
we didn't think this was obvious for most people who study interventions either by external actors or African states, that this would be a common motive or something that there would be a theme that and evidence to support. But we did find a great deal of evidence. As, as I talked about a little bit earlier, um, again, we're not going into archives. We're not looking at specific French governments, the Rocard government, second Rocard government, or whatever it is, or specific U.S. administrations or African regimes. But a number of the Western interventions, specific interventions by the U.S., by the French, by the Belgians, by the British, they all occur during times of unusual levels of unrest. And actually, even some supportive African interventions, there are unusual levels of unrest that coincide with some supportive African interventions, like like examples from Guinea before. And, and we already talked about the domestic economic problems. They show up, they make a scene, they enter the, they step on stage during a number of hostile interventions by African states, by Angola, by Uganda, by Congo. So I think this is something unique about the book or different because people don't tend to look at these domestic causes. Uh, The second hypothesis is one that probably was, well, I just think it's so important, but it probably was understood well before our book. And that's the notion of transnational rebels States will intervene into neighboring countries in pursuit of or to weaken transnational rebels that are operating across borders. And we find tons of evidence of this, both both for hostile interventions to attack those sites, but also for supportive interventions. So, for example, Angola intervened multiple times into Congo-Brazzaville and one of those was a pretty substantial supportive intervention in a period after um, Dennis Sassou and his Cobra militia took power because the Cobra militia opposed and was fighting against United Rebels. Um, they were losing, the new regime was losing power. There's a long history of various militias and uh, some inst- and instability in Congo Brazzaville. But the new regime was losing ground um, to their historic rivals. Uh, Angola intervened in in a supportive way to support that regime that was cracking down on their historic transnational rebel foes. Um, And they also didn't want the previous regime of Lusuba and his Koko militia, who had supported the UNITA, to gain ground um, and, and eventually retake power. The last, and again, I, I've hinted at and talked about the last hypothesis as well, and that is that large, countries with large foreign policy roles are going to intervene more often, and they often intervene in supportive ways. We find this obviously with France, we talked about with the superpowers. We also find this. As we talked about, or we hinted at before, with regional powers or African regional states, Guinea, 
under Toure, post-apartheid South Africa has intervened fairly a not insignificant amount of time to help to stabilize countries in their region. Mobutu Zaire, a Western ally, intervened to further Western interests. So regional roles played had an impact as well. That third and fourth, those are the last hypotheses. Thank you for taking us through them. Um, I, I'm glad we can kind of briefly mention all of them, though obviously we've gone into some in more detail than in others. Um, and so as my final question then, uh, you spoke in the beginning about how this book is very much a result of the partnership that the two of you have had for a while now and the work you've done previously, the work you bring and the expertise you bring in individually that's been combined, um, all of which has resulted in a whole bunch of really interesting things. And so there must, now that this book is done, be something you're working on now or next you can give us a tease preview of? Oh, I'd be thrilled. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So we have... Well, we both have our own individual projects we're working on, and we have some collaborative projects. We have a paper that's been in process for a while that will be published next year, I believe, in Political Research Quarterly that looks at, and this is another, It's again, I would argue a counterintuitive argument that wouldn't be obvious to, to all, that military interventions... This has nothing to do with Africa. Military interventions by European cabinet governments tend to extend those cabinet governments. Their duration is longer, and we have a theoretical reason built on previous ideas and research explaining why this might be the case. But we throw everything at this argument, all the cabinet stability literature, all the variables that typically explain why some cabinets last a long time, why some cabinets fall quickly, And we throw all that at it, and then we add in interventions, and we find that, yes, governments that intervene abroad do tend to last longer. And we build this on a – it's basically an agenda-setting argument that the the agenda is reset and revitalized, and there can be new cooperation after such a major event. Um, But that's detailed in that article. We also have a project – and we've really just started this on leaders in Africa and military intervention or the use of military force. In the, in the international relations literature and foreign policy analysis, quantitative um, international relations, there's a big focus on leaders again after decades of, of overlooking them or, or writing them out of the equation. But a lot of this literature, again, it's, it's, Universal, it's global samples. Let's look at all countries in the world. And this is these type of leaders with these type of attributes. This tends to occur in terms of the use of force. And we think that just overlooks so much, especially when it comes to a region like Africa, where (laughs) you have leaders serving into their 90s or coming to power in their 20s. And um, the African sample is just different. And, And we have some initial results on that that are pretty interesting. Um, and, and actually we've gone in and collected original data on that because we found some of the standard data sets on leaders, uh, didn't match up with the, with the, the resources that we had on African leaders. So we have some 
unique data on that as well. But that's a longer term project. But they're both very interesting. Yeah, they're both exciting. Yeah, very interesting projects. Thank you for briefly giving us a little thing to get excited about. Um, But while you are off working on that, um, listeners can read the book that we've been primarily discussing, which again is titled African Intervention, State Militaries, Foreign Powers and Rebel Forces from Cambridge University Press in 2021. And we've had with us one of the two authors um, from the book. Thank you so much, Jeff Pickering, for being with us. Uh, Thank you very much, Miranda. This is greatly appreciative that you're interested in the book and the opportunity. And I really appreciate the conversation.